The following is a message by Dr. Howell Jones from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Let us pray. We bow before Thee, O Lord our God, in the name of Thy dear Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we give Thee thanks that by Him we are installed in Thy favour, and that in spite of our sin, never exposed to Thy wrath and holy displeasure, seeing as Thou hast visited upon Him the full extent of that displeasure which we ourselves justly merited. We draw near to thee then through him and rejoice in the peace that we have with thee through his blood and righteousness and pray that thou wilt grant us thy presence and the comfort of it and the joy of knowing that we are ever in thy favor and will be one day forever in thy presence. Uphold and strengthen thy people who are tried and afflicted with the realization that thy Son has undergone on their behalf what they themselves could never bear and yet justly deserved, and grant them too peace and joy in believing. Advance the gospel to the ends of the earth and grant thy people power and joy in upholding thy Son, proclaiming his Lordship confessing that he alone is the one mediator between thee and men. And grant to us that we might please and honor thee day by day. Bless the testimony of this seminary to the ends of the earth. Preserve it and prosper it. And may the name of Jesus Christ be glorified once more in this needy land for his sake. Amen. You be seated, please. <clears throat> Well, we turn to the Gospel according to Matthew and to the 27th chapter, Matthew chapter 27 and verses 45 to 50, Matthew 27 verses 45 to 50, let us hear the word of God. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us by his spirit. It is the fourth saying of our Lord's from the cross that we turn to this morning, doubtless the most profound of them all. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
You may be aware of the fact that Martin Luther remarked about this saying, God forsaken of God. Who can understand it? And we do well to share Luther's awe and bewilderment, even though we, like he, can say something by way of explanation of why it was that our Lord was forsaken. Matthew and Mark record this saying, and both of them are concerned that those who read their gospel records would understand the Hebrew and Aramaic that they included in them, so they translated it. And by that, we ought to deduce that this saying is not here merely to remind us of the limited nature of our understanding, but to prompt and to stimulate us to ponder it more, that we might understand it a little better. And in addition to that fact, of course, we have both of them indicating how seriously and grossly some who were actually present on Golgotha at the time misunderstood it. They thought that Jesus was calling for Elijah. And it might well be that they were the first. And there have been a long line since of people who have come to this saying and have been concerned to omit God from it altogether and merely think of human terms as they've sought to understand it. Well, all I want to try and do this morning is to suggest a few lines of thought to you for our meditation on this particular saying. Let me remind you of its setting. We are told that it was around uh, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, I'm sorry, the ninth hour that Jesus uttered these words, three o'clock in the afternoon, about the time when he died. This saying is associated with the three that immediately follow so quickly, as it were, on its heels. That was the time. More important was the circumstance, because this saying was uttered in the darkness, and after three hours of the darkness, a darkness that was not a natural phenomenon, but a supernatural one. Midday turned to midnight. Luke tells us the light of the sun failed. It was as if someone switched off its light. During those three hours, the Lord Jesus seems to have been silent. No one said anything to him. He said nothing to any other. What was it that was pressing in upon his mind and spirit during that time? Well, this saying gives us a clue, points us in the right direction. He was thinking about what being forsaken involved. Let's use that thread as we think about these words. 
If we were to omit the word forsaken from it, the saying would be meaningless. Similarly, if we omitted the pronouns, you, me, from the saying, it would not make any sense at all. Here is an expression of a relationship fractured, broken, forsaken. And, of course, the Old Testament helps us here considerably, and namely Psalm 22. Now, the first thing that I want you to notice from this saying is this, that the Lord Jesus Christ was forsaken by God. That was what he said. He wasn't pretending. He knew it. And he knew it as no other could know it. Because more than once during his earthly life and ministry, he had said, when his foes opposed him, that he was not alone, his father was with him. And then on another occasion, when he told his disciples that they would forsake him, he was able to declare that he would not be forsaken by his father at that time. And that, of course, is what happened. They all forsook him and fled. But at that time, he wasn't left alone. His father was with him, and he, Jesus, knew it. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he wasn't alone. He addressed God there as his father. And doubtless it was the anticipation and the apprehension of being alone which caused the agony and bloody sweat. The apprehension was almost too much to bear. An angel was sent from heaven, strengthening him. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was not left alone. But now, he is. For the first time in his earthly life, he who lived in a constant relationship with his father in terms of which he always, as he said, always did what pleased the father. And the father on his part always heard what the son said and looked on what the son did with such evident and manifest approval on occasion declaring that in words, in whom I am well pleased. That's gone. Now he is alone, and there is no helper. The Lord Jesus Christ was forsaken by God. And the second thing is this, that the Lord Jesus Christ should not have been forsaken by God. If there was anyone from Adam to this time in history who should never ever have been forsaken, it was he. The Lord forsakes those who forsake him, who do not walk in his ways. This language of forsaking is out of the book of Deuteronomy and it's there repeated in the books of Kings and Chronicles and it's there in the prophets. This is the language of exile, banishment. Out of the Lord's land, away from the Lord's house, away from his temple. 
the language of exile. The dying thief could declare, this man has done nothing amiss. Pilate could say, why, what evil has he done? He should not have been forsaken. There was a real why, you see. This is not a rhetorical question. This is an expression of a mystery being transacted in terms of which some interests of justice are being served which on the face of it seem to be denied. If Jesus is just, why is he being punished? If God is just, how can he punish Jesus? If Jesus is just, then God becomes unjust. We're on the horns of a dilemma here, my friends. A dilemma that points to the unfathomable mystery that was taking place on the cross. If we don't begin to grapple with the unseen, with the imponderable, with the inexplicable, even though we know and dare not think that we'll be able to plumb its depths, but unless we begin to grapple with it, we'll not be able to derive any of the benefit from it. See, Psalm 22 underlines this, doesn't it? Why hast thou forsaken me? So far from me, so silent to me, distant, silent. And then he goes on to say that this God to whom he's calling is the one who delights to sit on the praise of his people, receiving their praise, answering their petitions. He's done it before. Our fathers trusted in thee. You heard them. You delivered them. Why not me? If them, why not me? What's happening? Something is happening. Our salvation is being secured, isn't it? That's what's happening. But it's a why. And don't ignore that why. Because what it points to is the fact that he who knew no sin was made sin. Not a sinner. But was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The Lord Jesus should not have been forsaken by God. Why? Oh, why? Well, the third line of thought is this, that the Lord Jesus Christ did not forsake God. There's a why here, but there's a my too. And there's more of a my than a why. Read these verses and then go back to Job chapter 3. And in Job's curse lament, you'll find why five times. And God not mentioned once. Here, you do have a why. It's a real why. But you have two mys. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ is not turning his back on the one who had turned his face away from him. He's doing the opposite. He's turning his face toward him. 
He's worshipping this God who has become hidden to him, who has become far from him, who has become distant to him. And not only that, a God who is actually inflicting death upon him. Job thought that. It wasn't true. Jesus knew it. It was true. He didn't forsake. And there is your righteousness in mind. That he, up to death, even death on a cross, was the obedient servant of the Heavenly Father. What then was he thinking? Well, Psalm 22 gives us the answer. That's what he began with. The opening verse is what he quoted. And if you go on to the end of the psalm, there's an expression there that is anticipatory of another of his sayings. It is finished. He has done it. It is finished. So that from the beginning to the end, in three hours of forsakenness by God, Jesus was thinking of God. And using Psalm 22 to help him to do so. And you know that psalm that begins with this lament, a need, has a shift in it, a major turn to it, and it ends in praise. That psalm sustained our Lord and Savior in dying for us as he knew what it was to be forsaken, but looked forward to the joy that was set before him of being heard and answered and delivered, of having his sacrifice accepted and the merit of his death along with it. Do you think he could have had Psalm 22 in his mind without the tune that went with it coming to his mind too? I don't. Not only did he know it, not only had he heard it, he'd heard it sung. Was he singing to himself in the minor and the major key on the cross? And if he was doing that, do you think that he also thought this is the way in which I am going to become Psalm 23 the shepherd of my people so that when they walk through the valley of the shadow of death they will fear no evil and they'll be gathered into the father's house and Psalm 24 the king of his people and the king of the universe The Lord Jesus Christ did not forsake God. What then can we say in answer to Luther's comment? Who can understand it? Can't we say something like this? It had something to do. God forsaken of God had something to do with the sinfulness of sin. Yours and mine. 
It had something to do with the holy wrath of God that he bore instead of us. It had something to do with that perfect righteousness that he accomplished, which is imputed to us, with which we now are clothed. And if that's the case, then it has everything to do with the amazing love and grace of God toward us. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we bow before thee. We can do nothing but thank thee for so great salvation. And yet, we would not merely do that. But we would praise thee for such a great saviour. Grant that nothing may compare Nothing unknown may compare with him in the estimation of our faith and the love of our hearts and the submission of our spirits and the obedience of our lives. May he have the preeminence which is his due now and forevermore. Amen. Copyright 2007 Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.